Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast. My name is Raymond Pryor. I'm a performance consultant. My areas of expertise are performance psychology, performance neuroscience, and sleep science. My co-host, Chase Cooper, golf instructor extraordinaire, straight back from Final Stage Q School uh, for the LPGA. And with us today, we also have a guest uh, right in my neck of the woods in terms of topics and areas of education and application. Uh, we have Carl Morris from uh, all the way across the pond in the UK. Welcome, Carl. Thanks, Raymond. It's, uh, it's good, to be, uh, good to be with you. Yeah, it's going to be uh, an interesting show today. I know Chase has got all kinds of stuff he wants to talk about, all kinds of questions he wants to ask you about players playing under pressure. So uh, before we get into that, Carl, tell us about yourself a little bit. Educate our listeners about uh, who you are, where you're from, what you do. Give us the lay of the land. Yeah, my original background, Raymond, is a, a spectacular failure as a player. Uh, I wanted to be one of the best players in the world when I when I sort of uh, left school and had a lot of potential and uh, went out and tried to tried to play at a certain level. Uh, didn't manage to to do that, and I and I kind of embarked on a journey that first of all started with a lot of people said to me that I needed to build a golf swing that would stand up under pressure. So I went, I went in search of this elusive golf swing that was going to stand up under pressure. And a, and a pattern started to emerge whereby I would go and get some instruction, work on some ideas, go to the range and fire these bullets down the range one after another after a period of time, and then put me in a big tournament, a big event, something where I really wanted to play well. And all of a sudden, the fe- formation of the shots took on a bit of a different, uh, a different look. And that kind of that kind of progressed for a number of years. I sought out some of the best coaches in the world and, and got more and more frustrated and eventually went away from the game for a couple of years and uh, studied all kinds of different approaches, you know, NLP and hypnosis and inner game and lots of different areas I looked at. And, and I came back to the game and, and started to work much more on the, on the performance side. Uh, and I got lucky in the early days working with a couple of players who, who did pretty well. And um, I, I kind of feel as though that I, that I, I was a sort of kindred spirit for them because they were the sort of desperate stage that I was at and I could relate to the situation that they were in. A couple of players did well and, uh, and, and from there I was fortunate to work with a number of guys who did well on tour and majors and things like that. So it's been a, it's been a long and winding journey. I've certainly not got all of the answers, but I think I asked some reasonable questions these days. Yeah, let's uh, let's unpack a little bit of that because it's a lot of uh, an experience that not just in golf, but in a variety of sports is a really common experience where you fall victim to this. You, you used a couple of words and phrases that are, you know, the people in our neck of the woods working on the psychological part there. It's nails across the chalkboard, which is the word potential, which is just this idea of how good you could or couldn't be based on what your past or present might be. And this idea that you're going to build physical, technical skills that will, quote unquote, withstand pressure, which is not at all what how our nervous system and performance actually works. So take us through this idea, like the the trap of potential. How did that play out for you or where did it start and how did it play out? Well, the trap of potential was that I, I started I was a very good cricketer and reasonable footballer. So I had kind of sort of reasonable ability in sport in general. And I, I started to play golf quite late. I was only about I was about fifteen, something like that, when I first started to play. And within twelve months, I'd actually shot level par in a tournament, having never never taken any instruction. And 
I remember a, a guy had a I had a conversation. I shot this level par round within sort of twelve months of uh, of playing competitive golf, and this guy said to me, he "said If you uh, do you realise what what you've done in that short space of time, if you started to if you took some lessons, you could be really good." And and that kind of like set me off then of of I mean quite analytical in the way that I think of going down the technical route and searching for this ideally perfect motion. And what I, I look back on it now, Rima, what was really interesting was that when I was growing up, when I was starting to play the game, all I was interested and in, all my mind was focused on was I wanted to hit a certain shape of shot. I was really interested in the shots. And I got really good at hitting this little draw off every tee and hitting draws into the greens and was really consistent with that. And then all of a sudden, the emphasis changed from the shots to the swing. And it was all about now I had to get into certain positions because it was a little bit of a quirky move that I made. It was a bit across the line at the top. And for the next sort of 10 years, it was just an obsession with trying to put the clubs into club into various positions. And I just spent more and more time on the range and less and less time playing golf. And the ability to then produce numbers on the golf course diminished further and further. But I just went deeper and deeper and down that rabbit hole of, of thinking that the answers all lay in positions in the golf swing. Now, as we all know, as Chase knows, we're not saying for one minute that you can ignore technique. You need to develop competency. You need to develop certain skills. But ha I had a, a, a high amount of skill in terms of hitting certain shots, but I didn't realize it at the time. And I look back on a, most of the instruction that I took and what was really interesting that I can think of, you know, Pretty, pretty high-profile coaches that I would go and see these coaches and nobody ever talked about the shots that they wanted me to hit. It was straight away into the swing. And, you know, that kind of led down this journey that, you know, I firmly believe now that, you know, we wrote a couple of books on this very subject that, you know, the, the question is, does the swing create the shots or does the shot create the swing? Yeah. And interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting back and forth. Also, pull from this. So for our listeners who are trying to understand their own psychology a bit, in Carl's experience there, he experienced some success, perhaps outside of his realm of expectation young. And then someone suggested to him, in order to continue this success, you have to go find perfect technique in one way or another. That's the message that gets encoded, right? So here we have the formation of a core belief, which is I have a life experience. There's a message paired to it. And then now everything in my life starts to go fit through this window of that core belief and which isn't a bad thing. That's what our brain is exactly designed to do. However, Carl, my guess is if you had gone back to that moment and you could go back in time and tap yourself on the shoulder, you'd go, hold on a second. That's some really well-intentioned advice, but you don't need to take it verbatim on the spot in terms of here's the road you have to go down to be successful. True or false, by the way, correct me if I'm off course. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So we see that. And then this idea again that, you know, where we're kind of that core belief is kind of the idea that if I build flawless technique, that will lead to success. So from the psychological point of view, Carl, it's very easy to think that, you know, and, and there are a lot of instructors listening to our podcast who go, well, my players play better when their technique is better. And we go, yes, of course, that's obvious. Right. But the idea of if I'll build a golf swing that can just, quote unquote, withstand pressure. Can you tell us why that's, a, a, although on the surface it looks good, but beneath the surface it's an inherently flawed model? Yeah, because you, you just become more and more vulnerable in the sense that when you go to practice, I, I ended up going to the range and it got to the point where 
I'd hit a lot of good shots, but the good shots didn't mean anything right. in the sense that then I was waiting for the bad shot almost. And the bad shot was then a confirmation that the technique was flawed. And I started to see, I, you know, we've had many conversations and I firmly believe now that our brain learns really efficiently from error. It doesn't, it doesn't learn from trying to repeat the same thing over and over again, but I fell into that trap in a big way. So my relationship to failure, my relationship to outcomes got more and more dangerous in the sense that I became really vulnerable to any kind of outcome that I perceived that was less than perfection. Right. So that I call it, I call it with plays I work with the the one shot from insanity. I got on the golf course and I was always one shot from insanity because I, I didn't realize the importance of building a psychological resilience to the variety of outcomes that we're always going to get in the game of golf. You know, and as we've talked about, Remen, you know, I firmly believe that that this, I'm sure we'll come on to it, but this core principle of being okay and being able to accept the variety of outcomes from shot to shot, from round to round, from tournament to tournament, unless you really embrace that, the amount of vulnerability that you will experience will always hamper the skills that you currently possess. Yeah. So if I'm kind of pulling together what you're saying, which you are your experience, which is what many people in a variety of performance realms experience is confirmed through research repeatedly, which is if I look for a flawless execution that I can flawlessly execute under all conditions, it cannot be found. Right. So the reason we're vulnerable to trying to create flawless technique in order to chase success is that it is an impossible task. Nobody has flawless technique. Trust me, go on a YouTube search and try to find people picking apart any player swing in the world and they will find some quote unquote flaws. Right. So nobody has flawless techniques. And then as you're getting to once we start chasing that, the psychology becomes, well, for me to be able to play freely and be confident and be successful, I cannot have any error. And then as soon as I have some error, even if it's functional error, meaning like this is a functional golf shot you can get around with, or this is a functional round of golf where I didn't shoot myself out of a tournament or I'm in a position where I can make a move or like become something that is entirely threatening to us. And then when we are in a threat response, it doesn't matter what technique we have. It is then therefore going to be disrupted. And as you said, the one shot from insanity, what our research shows us again, it's, it's actually it starts as one shot from insanity. But then it's, uh-oh, it's not just that I need to hit a, a good shot to feel confident. I now need two. I got to hit three. So you see those players on the range where I got to finish with a good one. I got to finish with three good ones. Now I got to finish with five good ones. Or if I hit one bad shot, I got to hit 10 in order to make up for that one. So the ratio just keeps getting wide, wider and wider. And if you do that long enough, which you beat me to my next question while you're giving your response already was, how long was it before you quit for a while? And it doesn't take a psychologist to figure out that if you're running through that psychological framework, chasing that impossible task of um, flawless technique in order to produce success with a diminishing ratio, Mm. it's a immensely burnout oriented approach to any craft. And I completely lost the ability to be flexible in this in the sense that every day going onto the range, it was about if I'd hit the ball well the previous day. It was about trying to hang on to something that was in the past. Yeah, You know, as, as I say to most of the players now, I, I say that when you go to the range, if you're asking yourself the question, can I, ha- can I hang on to that swing that I had yesterday? That is, that again, is very vulnerable position. It really if is. You, if you go to the range, 
and ask yourself that open question of what shots do I have today? What, what have I got with me today? I become adaptable. I become flexible then. And then I think there's immense freedom in that, whereby you, you don't get scared with the fact that, okay, you were, you were hitting that nice soft draw yesterday, but it doesn't appear to be there today. But you do have something that you can get around the golf course with. You can manage, you know, as you know, Raymond, I have, I have never worked with any player in all the time. I've been fortunate to work with a number of guys who've won. I've never heard one player ever say that I played, I won the tournament and I played great for four rounds. It's never, ever happened one time. There's always some point where they say it, it was great Friday and Saturday, but Sunday for nine holes was a real struggle. Mm -hmm. But I dug in and I managed to just hit some fairways and hit some greens and just managed to scramble a little bit. And I got, I got, through, I got through that period. Yeah. And what you're talking about, I want to pull out a theme here for our listeners too, is this rigidity, right? When we're chasing flawless technique, when we're saying I have to have good results, or I have to be able to absolutely repeat a swing day in and day out in order for me to go play with confidence and play freely. What happens is we're very rigid. Now, again, you might say, well, there's some strength in rigidity, and I would agree with that. But again, think about it if we were using an analogy of like a tree, a very rigid tree with no bend in it can withstand some wind or some pressure, some stress. After a while, though, it breaks, right? And so the more flexible we are, not that we would throw all caution to the wind and give up on anything from day to day. But the more flexibility that I can bring to, okay, what do I have today? What are the things that I'm connecting with that allow me to at least assess what shots I'm playing or um, reestablish some of the motions I'm creating? That creates enough flexibility where now I'm a tree that I'm actually much stronger because I can move with the environment around me. And the issue with trying to build a very rigid tree is the bottom line is that high level performance, there's no rigidity that can withstand the amount of pressure and stress that comes with it at least not that we found just yet. So just like a very rigid body is not very resilient to athletic motion, particularly at high speeds and at high rotation, a very rigid psychology and a very rigid approach to the swing also doesn't hold up over time and over space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So take us through this transition where you go from playing, having the experience you had, and well, let me fill in a blank here before you go there. What was the the insights that you gained and how did you gain those going from, as you would put, like kind of being a marvelous failure but between that time where then you start returning to golf in a role of more of a consultant and more of a performance, like, you know, you could have easily gone, well, I'm a failure. I should never return to golf and I have no place in the game, which would be, you know, again, an insight into some psychological framework. But instead you had some reflection, you had something that allowed you to go, you know, I'm going to step back into that arena in a different way with a different set of insights and, and knowledge. Take us through that transition. I think probably the most important conversation that I've ever had Raymond, was um, I, I went over to uh, Southern California and I spent some time with Fred Shoemaker at his golf school in, in, in Carmel there. And we were, we were chatting one day and uh, he was asking about what I was doing. And I was, I was playing, but I was also coaching at that time as well. And, 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 he, and he said, how, how do you coach? And I was discussing my sort of coaching approach. And he said, he said, are you passing on to others what didn't work for you? And I thought, my God, all, yeah. I'm, doing, all I'm doing here is just repeating history, where I'm yeah. just replicating what didn't work for me. And I, and I think about, you know, I, I, look, I look back to the guys who I gave lessons to. All the, in the first sort of four or five years of my instructional career, 
I should pretty much ring every one of those people up and offer some, give them, give them the money back. Because I, I look back on those days now and I think those days were all about me trying to impress them with the information that I'd got and the knowledge that I'd got about the golf swing and all this kind of stuff. And, and I realized that it was, I, I wasn't providing them. I wasn't creating a learning environment for students. All I was doing was just dumping information on them. And that, that from, from that conversation with, with Fred, as I say, I went away for a while. Uh, I, I looked at behavioral approaches, NLP, as I say, NLP, lots of different things, spent time with the inner game. And, and, I, and I worked for a period of time um, in, with habit control. I spent a lot of time working with people who were trying to quit smoking and, and mm. uh, um, weight loss and things like that. You know, fairly su surface level stuff. But I, I started to see that this was much more about than just the golf swing. I started to see that everybody that you get in front of you, as obvious as it sounds, is a human being. There's lots of yeah. different drivers there. And, and I, when I came back to coaching, my, my approach was totally different then in the sense that I was fortunate I could start with a clean slate. And I actually, as radical as this sounds, <laughs> I, everybody that I would work with, I would go out with them on the golf course. I'd never done that previously. I'd never done that. I, I took them out on the golf course. I started to understand a little bit more about them as human beings, started to watch them in the environment called golf. And I, and I know there's a challenge always from an economic model in terms of coaching with this. But I do think it's, it's strange that we're a sport where, unfortunately, a lot of coaching does not take place in the environment that we play. And I think the best, the best coaches really understand this, that, you know, the, the, the true place where the golf will be revealed is actually out on the golf course. And, and then, you know, you, it, it, was, it was so clear to me when I actually watched people on the course that they were blaming the golf swing all the time. But when you actually looked at how they were going about creating shots, but perhaps more importantly, how they were reacting to golf shots, the, the fallout from, you know, a poor shot or the reaction that they had from missing a putt and things like that. And they, they weren't even looking at that. They, they, they never apportioned any accountability to what they did before the shot or after the shot. So it was kind of that from those simple early early approaches that, that kind of a philosophy emerged. And I, I, I'm really keen on the idea, certainly in the last few years, of, of trying to make this workable and manageable for people. Because I'm sure, as you know, Raymond, that we have to understand the psychology, but the application of it needs to be practical, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, these guys out there playing on tour, they want practical tools. And I kind of narrowed it down in the end, and, and the, the Lost Art books were all about this, that to me there seemed three really important keys to performance, and that was intention, attention, and attitude. And I can pick, that, pick those three words apart, but I think... You know, any time somebody understands how important those three words are, they've got a reasonable framework to start developing some more robust mental skills. Yeah, take us through those three pillars. How do you define them? Yeah. So, I mean, we can we can look at intention, attention, and attitude in terms of a big picture of a golf tournament. We could look at it around a golf, but let's look at an individual shot. That unless you have a really, really clear intention about what you want the golf ball to do, your, your body isn't being provided with a map to follow. You know, as, as obvious as it sounds, I mean, there was, a great, there was a great book written many years ago called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by a guy called Stephen Colby. 
one of the highlight, one of the, the the effective habits was begin with the end in mind. And again, as obvious as that sounds, what are we actually trying to do with this golf ball? So by creating clarity of intention, I want the golf ball to start here, to turn over, to do do whatever, creating that clear image. We can then, and this is where the skill of the coach comes in, we can then decide in that crucial time when you're actually swinging the golf club, where does, where does a golfer's attention need to be to allow that skill to emerge? And, you know, I, I say, to, say to players, and perhaps for people listening, a great way of thinking about this, working with your coach, is that you need to become an attention detective. You need to get really interested in where your attention as a unique person, a unique golfer needs to be to free you up. Now, for some people, that attention might be the target. That's few and far between. Other people, it might be the golf club. Some people's attention might be on what the body's doing, or it might be a neutral thing where they're not, they're not even focused on the particular task. But if you start to see that your ability to produce shots on the golf course will be dependent on your understanding of where your attention needs to be, then you start to, I think, get into real areas of performance, of, of accessing skills out on the golf course. And then the final one, attitude. You know, what attitude do you bring to a particular golf shot? Can you bring an attitude of acceptance of, of outcomes based on the fact that you went through the first two steps, you did everything that you could? Are you able to 100% deal with and accept the outcome of a particular shot? Now, that acceptance doesn't mean resignation it doesn't mean that there's not going to be an initial reaction after the golf ball goes right left or you miss a short putt but do you have a capability to accept the outcome in an object in an objective way rather than falling into the trap of subjective stories where you start falling into the trap of capability and ability and all those kind of things let me recap here, make sure that I'm tracking with you and, and um, bringing kind of a, a larger net around this. So intention, you know, if we're talking kind of the language that I use with my clients, like you're clarifying the task that you want Absolutely. to pursue. Absolutely. Right. So again, our brain doesn't speak in positive and negative, right and wrong, really. It speaks in tasks in the direction of go do this or go don't do that. Right. So do or don't, which is really pursuit or avoidance. And so what intention is doing is clarifying what is the task that I'm going to pursue that task might be how I'm going to play. That might be your larger picture that you had alluded to earlier. You know, when it comes to an individual golf shot, what is it that I'm intending to do with this golf ball? And the more clear I am on that task, the less my nervous system is guessing when I'm standing over that shot. Okay. Attention. I, and go, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Just, go ahead. just on, that, on that point, and I think it's, it's, we'll probably get into this. What, what I certainly find is this, this idea of having a clear intention you can carry that out regardless of how you're feeling, regardless of what the thoughts may or may not have been going through your mind. I think many people have this idea of being able to control the thinking. You know, as we know that, who knows what we're going to think next. We can have a torrent of thoughts coming through, but we can have the ability to bring our intention to this particular moment. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Clarifying intention and what you want to pursue does not necessarily mean that you need to be comfortable or certain about Absolutely. anything, right? So it's 
clarifying intention. You don't need to feel a certain way. You don't need to think a certain way. You don't even know have to have been playing well or like it's it is independent of circumstances provided you know how to clarify that intention. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Okay. So then attention, what you're really talking about is, is my focus directed in a way that helps me pursue the task that I have just clarified? Yeah. Right. So I'm imagining that's a what, you know, and this is where it's a what, as you're saying, is it a target? Is it a physical motion? Is it a, a sensation? And then I'm also going to guess, and again, correct me if I'm off course here, there's a lot of not just what, but when, W-H-E-N, like what time frame is my focus in? Is it on the task as it's playing out now? Or am I perhaps in a time frame that is not necessarily conducive to, to the task that, as it's happening right now? And I would even pop a, a time out here, Carl. Um, there's a research coming out uh, that'll be published pretty shortly here in the next couple of weeks that really shows that most people are pretty much passive passengers of their focus and attention. Mm. Like it just kind of goes places and they're not super tuned in to where it is most of the time, unless they take the time to actually pay attention to that. Is that something that you had uh, kind of touched on earlier? And then also if you find someone who comes to you and they are a passive passenger to their attention and focus, what are some of the ways that you help them tune in and be, as you said, a detective of their, of their attention? Yeah. Well, I'll say to them that the golf swing is over in a blink of an eye. It's, it's a split second to swing the golf club physically. But for the mind, the golf swing can be an eternity. Yeah. In the, in the sense, in that, in that second that we swing a golf club, from moving the club into the backswing all the way up to the top, the transition down into impact, we can, we can have multiple focus of attention or foci of attention. So I'll begin to explore. I mean, Fred, Fred said this to me 25, 30 years ago. He said he felt it was very unlikely that the majority of golfers had ever hit a golf shot where they kept their attention in one place for the duration of that golf swing. Yeah. So he, all those years ago, he got me exploring the idea of placing my attention on the, the club head and could I keep my attention there all the way through the swing? And the, I remember the first time I tried it, I thought, Jesus, I cannot believe that my mind jumps around so much. And guess what? And Fred called it the blind spot. My attention jumped around the most in the areas of the golf swing where I had most trouble. So I, I, I under pressure, my, my transition always got a little bit quick and a little bit snatchy. And, and when I began to explore attention, I realized that there was this blind spot at the top of the swing where I kind of just, I, I kind of just lost it. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is why for most people, swing thoughts tend to work in, in on, on the range, but then there's, 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 there's the trap door on the golf course because there's no consequence on the range. I can have a takeaway thought and that the, the after the takeaway thought, my mind, the, the void can be there on the range, but I can still hit decent shots because of no consequence. I get on the golf course and the void after the takeaway thought now doesn't get filled. Well, it does get filled with anxiety and what That's might right. happen, happen to this shot. So I think, you know, to hopefully answer your question, to come back to it, to just begin to explore. In martial arts, they call it the one point. The ability to the, the place the attention. The, there's, a, there's a wonderful book I'd recommend people have a look at. It's called The Principles of Effortless Power 
a guy called Peter Ralston. And he talked a lot about going into, into, into fights in martial arts. And he placed his attention on his dantien, on the, on the center part of his body. And he felt he, he kept his attention there all the way through the movements. Yeah. And he felt that when he did that, all the training that he'd done actually emerged as a result of that. Yeah. And, and to both of those points, you're kind of alluding to, all right, so our, our brain can focus and change focus way faster than we can physically move. Hence why even a golf swing being as fast as it is, we can, if you're at the top of your backswing and you haven't uh, either placed your focus intentionally or you're not willing to accept a consequence that doesn't necessarily exist on the range, your brain can fill it in. Doesn't yeah. necessarily mean it will, but it sure can, especially if that becomes a habit for you, which sort of gets to your last pillar here, attitude, which the, the foundational layer of attitude is this idea of acceptance, which our listeners have heard me talk about ad nauseum on this podcast. And the reason acceptance is important is because if we have a low level of acceptance, our brain is going to fill in that space where we are not willing to accept, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's at the top of the backswing, when we're step onto the first tee, if I'm unwilling to accept the consequences of, we might say, a mistake, a failure, an embarrassing experience, or, by the way, success. If yeah. I'm not willing to accept those consequences, my brain is designed to fill in that space in a way of, uh-oh, now the task has shipped. So even if I have really clear intention and I'm paying attention to my focus, my level of acceptance is low. The task will change even at the top of my backswing to an avoidance-based task. My focus will then shift accordingly and then surprise, surprise, I have a difficult time taking it from the range to the course. So I can see why in order to kind of put the wrapping paper on your first two pillars, you have to bring that robust sense of acceptance. Otherwise, the other two are kind of um, hoping to fall in place more than being placed in place. To me, Raymond, if it was a triangle with these three elements, the base of the yeah. triangle has to be acceptance. And, and then you start to get into the whole area of not just on that particular shot, but an unwillingness to accept outcomes, then you have the possibility or the likelihood of contamination, I call it. Right. You can, you're contaminating the next shot with the residue of the previous shot. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, we see it We see it so clearly on the, on, with, with putting up on the greens that, that the closer I get to the hole, again, if there's an unwillingness to accept an outcome, i.e., you know, how many people say, oh, I should have, I should have made that put, or I must make that put, or all this kind of language that we use. And and you see more and more anxiety created around that. You know, but I often say to, to, to the players, you know, if if you're prepared to miss, you're free to hold it. Yeah. And, and it, it, people find it a, a struggle at first because it's like they can say, Well, are you not saying are you not imagining negative things? And we say, Well, no, what just just by it. Just by accepting the fact that you can miss, that's not a negative in any way. That's the reality of the game yeah. and a willingness to embrace that. Yeah, it's a bit of a red flag in our field, as you're kind of uh, touching on, when people are saying you can't think negative or you can't consider negative outcomes, we might call them. It's a bit of a red flag in our field. And the reason is because if you do, if you're suggesting that you clearly don't understand how our brain works, right? Yeah. So I'll just kind of reiterate again, that even though our listeners have heard it a million times, acceptance is a pillar of psychological strength for us if we're trying to thrive because it limits multitasking. Specifically, it limits multitasking with avoidance. And as you said, if my level of acceptance is too low for the things that I don't want, 
then my brain and my nervous system is designed to try to save me from those. And any golfer who's played a round of golf trying to not hit bad shots, not miss short putts knows that disrupts all the physical skills that we have. And it also makes it a very anxious and miserable experience. What being willing to accept the things that we don't want does for us, as you said, is it actually gives us permission to pursue the things that we do because I don't have to try to save myself from the things I don't want at the same time. And as much as we love to think we're great multitaskers, we're not. We can really kind of only pursue or try to avoid one thing at a time. And if I give my brain something to say, yes, you better avoid this, which is another way of saying I'm not willing to accept it, it's designed to prioritize that and we don't get the conscious choice in that matter. Mm. We can only consciously choose Will I be willing to live with this outcome? And if I am, then my brain doesn't feel the need to fill in that space, even as close to the impact as the top of my backswing. So right on. I think the other thing as well with this, Raymond, that is, is, is you get deeper and deeper into these traps. I think many people end up playing the game whereby they, they, actually, they actually fear how they're going to feel when they yeah. fit poor shot. That's right. They, they, they start to they start to really become averse to the feelings that they know they're going to get as a result of poor shots, and yes. and then you're in a real downward you're in a real downward spiral with your relationship to the game. Then, yeah, what happens then is you're not just fearful of a poor shot; you're fearful of the con- the self imposed consequences of it. And it doesn't take a psychologist to figure out that if I tell you if this doesn't go well, which you are telling yourself it must go well, or it better not not go well there is a significant emotional punishment on the other side of it that you're probably not going to perform well. It's going to be a pretty miserable experience. And that is essentially the formula for burnout, right? Your relationship with your craft has become conditional. If good, feel good. If bad, feel bad. That is a razor's edge to be able to move along where your nervous system is always going to be trying to save you from outcomes you don't want. And of course, we know that's one, not very enjoyable. And two, we don't perform very well doing that. Yeah, there, was, right. um, there was a meditation teacher that I, I've had for a long time, and he's got a great metaphor for it that has resonated with a lot of people. And he talks about, I, I think it's from a, a Buddhist tenant, but he talks about the, the concept of the second arrow in the sense that whenever you're out on the golf course, the first, the first arrow will always happen. You're going you're gonna right. to hit it into the woods. You're going you're gonna to miss from, from short range. You're going to leave it in the bunker. The, the, the game of golf is full of the first arrows, but the second arrow is your response to that first arrow. And that then becomes a choice to make, whether you, whether you actually fire the second arrow or not. It, it's been a really useful metaphor that for a lot of players that you, you go out and just you know, observe yourself. Because as you know, Raymond, with a lot of behavior change, that if you can get some, somebody to simply understand a concept and then go out on the golf course and just go into observer mode. Just actually observe, yeah. rather than rather than rather than try to change. First of all, just observe your reactions. Just observe how many second arrows that you actually fire out on there on the golf course. And then, I'm not saying it becomes a game, but it becomes a different relationship that you have to these issues. Then, as you, as you- yeah. So awareness is the first line of information processing for us at all. So there is no. Um, there is no intervention, not just in psychology, but neurology, physiology, work, that doesn't involve some level of awareness. Mm. And it's amazing how our brain and nervous system is designed to use that awareness. And it almost auto adjusts most of the time, depending on how ingrained things might be. So, for example, 
there are thousands of research studies that show that if you make somebody aware of something, their behavior will almost change automatically just by being aware that something is happening, right? So there's a classic one. It's a little bit not golf related where they took a bunch of college age men and they informed them that factually women do not find you as attractive as you think they do. And all of a sudden their behavior around women starts to change and vice versa, right? And this is the same thing in golf where if you make somebody aware of something and to the point where they can't help but pay attention to it, there's a bit of an autocorrective method in the way of, well, does which one of these feels better and which one of these works better for me, which is the, essentially the most efficient framework for habit change is we start observing in a non-judgmental way. What am I doing? One, two, how does it make me feel? And three, does it actually move me in the direction of what I would call productive for me? And the more you pay attention to that, either the more disillusioned you become with uh, the original response and the more enchanted you become with the new response, rather than trying to just convince yourself to change your behavior, go from one to another without that step in between. Yeah. 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 Okay. So Carl, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. And then we're going to let, I know Chase has got, he's just been, yes, Chase is still here for those listening. <laughs> he's just been really quiet. Uh, he's got a lot of stuff he wants to talk about, I know, but just give us an idea now, kind of like what you're doing now, what work looks for you. I know you're working with tour players, but you also have, um, would you call it an academy? What would you call that, that you are, you're operating right now? Yeah, I've, uh, for the past sort of 17 or 18 years, uh, we've done certification courses for, uh, for, for, for pros who are interested in the performance side of, side of things. So we just... We just recently did. We do a, a live, live uh, three-day course in Manchester that we do every year of the seventeenth year. We kind of fill it out every year. So we uh, we we just did that and get a bunch of people, literally from all over the world. Uh, we have an online version of that. So it, it's it's a mixture, Raymond, between doing doing the training like that, um, working with players. Don't just work with tour players. Work with you know aspiring mm -hmm. young players, co college players enthusiastic seniors and, and, and people who've maybe got to a point in their life where they can see an opportunity to explore what they could be capable of in, in the game. Um, but also I do a lot of seminars. I, I, I do a lot of seminars at clubs and for organisations and things like that, just basically talking about those, those, those three simple words. It's, it's, it's surprising when people get an understanding of this, a lot of, yeah. the, piece, a lot of the pieces start to fall into place. Yeah, right on. Okay. Okay, Chase, tag out. You tag in. Um, yeah, so my my first thought is that last 35 minutes was super powerful for, I mean, Carl, your story, and, and you and I have talked, we talked a few times last year. Um, your story is very similar to mine and how I got completely burnt out at the end of my playing career. Like, I was, I remember spending time on the range waiting to hit a bad shot. Like yeah. I was trying to, I was, I was waiting for that one shot so I could fix something. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just remember leaving, I would leave every day, uh, worn out. I would, I would look forward to going to the range and going to work on my swing, even though I thought I was, I was improving. I thought I was getting better and I would find stuff. And then I, I'll never forget. And I say this all the time to my students, I'd, I'd go to the first, first tee of a tournament and I'm like, I got this swing thought that's guaranteed to work. And I remember pulling it back on the first, like, like in the motion, I'm pulling it back. Like, there's no way I can trust this. I can't believe there's no way this is ever going to fly. And like, I just hit the ball and see where it goes. Right. Um, 
I got a, obviously I got a bunch of questions, but my my first question for kind of both of you is this conversation. You know, if I'm a high handicapper that is 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 a 30 handicap that's just struggling miserably to hit the golf ball and thinks that golf is the dumbest sport in the world, I'm hearing you guys talk about how important attention and intention and and obviously we've talked for 15 episodes plus on on stable confidence and acceptance and being on time and all the all, all the things that we obviously believe is important, but how do you talk to those guys that is either from a skill level or just a competency level from a mechanical level? Like, How do you coach those guys? Well, I think it begins with what we said at the beginning, Chase, really, is what, what are you trying to do with the golf ball? And, and then understand what concepts they currently have, even with a beginner. You know, what, is it, what does a beginner want to do? A beginner wants to see a golf ball go up in the air. That's, they're not bothered whether it goes left or right. They just want to th- see the thing fly up in the air. But they're still, they still want to hit a golf shot. So I say, well, okay, if you're trying to hit a golf shot, if you're trying to hit the ball up in the air, what, if you were coaching me, uh, I, I would say to the student, if you were coaching me, what would, what, would, what would you tell me to do to make that golf ball go up in the air? And then you unpack what the current concept is. Now, as you know, most beginners, the you know, the classic fallback motion where they're trying to scoop the ball up in the air is because they have a concept from tennis or cricket or whatever it is that makes them move in that way. So that then you can begin to explore where does their attention need to be to actually make the golf ball go up in the air. So, you know, then we could explore, okay, what do you think might happen if you put your attention on the club head and we got the club head to brush the ground where the golf ball was going to be or where the tee was going to be? So all of a sudden now, if, we, if we've got the golf club brushing the ground, as you know, if, it's, if the ball's sat on the tee and their attention is on brushing the ground, the, the, the loft, the compression happens and the golf ball goes up in the air. So it, 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 it to me, no matter what level it is, it always comes back with to what are you trying to do with the golf ball? If, the, if this guy has sliced all his life and he wants to, to see the ball moving a little bit from right to left or a little bit straighter, Okay, what what do you think is going to make that happen? You know, and I'm, I'm I'm sure you'd back this up, Jace. That it's it's amazing for me that that a that a game that is so that the golf club is so important. The golf club supplies the information. The club face that supplies the information to the golf ball. We must be the only sport where most people who play the game pay no attention whatsoever to the implement in the hand. You know, a guy who's good at tennis, I would imagine, is pretty in tune with the racket. A guy who plays cricket is pretty in tune with the bat. But most golfers have no attunement and no attention on on the golf club. So, you know, probably a long-winded answer to that no. question. But well, and it's it's funny you say that because I think us as a as a on the instruction side of the industry, I mean, we've paid way too much attention to the hips and the pivot for way too long. And I, I find myself pushing back on that. I, it's easy to get people to move their legs the way we need to, but you grip that club and your, your brain's going to try to figure out how to get the club head on the golf ball in any way, shape or form. Right. And that's where it starts to get really messy for most people. Um, Carl, do you agree that there's a, um, that every bad shot, there's a reason for that bad shot? Or is it, I mean, do you say your players struggle after a round of golf or, or, or miss it a, a really important shot under pressure? Do you think that they, you can always kind of put that, that uh, you can identify the reason and put it in a, in a particular bucket after each shot or each round? I, I, I try to say to players, Chase, that I, 
you, you, you're going to have much more, it's going to be much more productive if you look for patterns rather than shots. In, in the sense that if you try and analyze every single shot for a specific reason why that's happened, yes, objectively, the golf club will have done certain things to make the golf ball go left or right. But I think if anybody falls into the trap of trying to individually on each shot, trying to ascertain what went wrong there, again, you can be all over the place. If there's a pattern, you know, if, if, if this thing's going left all of the time and, you know, you, you're spending most of the time in the woods on the left-hand side of the golf course, there is obviously something that you could look at from a technical perspective then. If, you know, if, if somebody's out on the golf course and there is a, a, a wide variety of shots and there, there really doesn't seem to be much of a pattern there, maybe that is a little bit more of a psychological element then that they're actually, you know, there, there's a fear of outcome or whatever it may be, some of the things that we've already touched on. Right. Uh, but but I, I'm, I'm much more keen on effective reflection afterwards. I, I'll, I'll ask a player to get into the habit after a round of golf of journaling and in the journal one of the questions would be what patterns did you notice today so they can start to write that down and become a little bit more aware of what does happen for them on the course but next to that I'll also get and say what were the three best shots of the day where they actually write down the three best shots and the feelings and the sensations attached to that so there is an observation of 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 patterns of shots but also a reflection on the good stuff that you've done as well, because I think people get very good at only reflecting on the bad stuff that they've done and the stories that then can build as a result of that. I think to, to follow up that the reason I ask is, is again, I fell into the trap of always blaming the golf swing. And so like yeah. with my players and with the help of guys like you and, and obviously, obviously Raymond, like the first thing that I always ask is for me, it's three things. Um, Raymond calls it on time and on target. I, I call it game plan. Like, was your, was your game plan precise enough? So like, was your, um, was your game plan precise enough? And then were you on time for every shot? And how was your acceptance levels? Like those three kind of concepts are so important for, for, for what I'm trying to get my players to understand. And then if they were locked in, then it could be a strategy issue or it could be a mechanical issue. And like, I tell them, I'm like, look, you get, three or four mechanic for, for the better players you get three or four mechanical bad swings around like if it if it's more than that then there's a pattern that we got to look into but more than likely it needs to it's your bad shots are going to fall into one of the first three something happened we got a little bit confused with wind or game plan we weren't quite clear enough we didn't stay on time or our acceptance levels got kind of low and so i i like this idea of like there is a reason I try to identify reasons for every shots for my players, just so that way they, and, and really what I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get them to understand that it's, it's not always a golf swing. Like if, if we can blame it on, on the mental processes, we're going to be much, it's going to be much easier to fix than trying to put out every little golf swing fire. Yeah. I think Pia, ne Pia Nielsen said many years ago, she said she felt sorry for the golf swing because it gets blamed for everything. Yeah. Right. Get the you know, um, and that, that trap of, uh, it can be a bit of a trap trying to figure out what every single golf shot did if every single shot, because again, we might not always know. Mm -hmm. So for example, maybe I made a great swing, but I'm in a funky lie. So how do I know how much of it was the lie versus how I delivered the club? And sometimes the answer is multiple things. And I don't know to what percent that it included those. And if we're in this constant judgment and analysis of every shot, we get more into that 
and it becomes easy to get bogged down in shots that have already happened rather than moving forward. Now, again, if I'm a good golfer and I've seen three shots in a row go left or right, and, and it's like that I go, okay, hold on a second. What's going on here? Let me do a quick uh, assessment, I might say. But if every now and then I hit a shot that doesn't go well, like that's kind of how golf goes, even for the best players in the world. And if I'm constantly in a state of analysis, um, my brain activity is not super conducive to me being able to execute shots when it's time to do so. If I don't have a dividing line between where's my analysis and where do I go actually perform? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, I mean, I mentioned the, 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 the three elements, intention, attention, and attitude. I, I, I was on, um, John Sherman and Adam Young's podcast a while ago. And, uh, John, John's written a great book called the four foundations of golf. And, and they, they have, I mean, and, and I really sort of, it's, it's, it ties in perfectly with my philosophy. They, they kind of bring it down. Every golf shot that you hit, chances are there's going to be one of three physical factors to a golf ball going offline. It's either going to be face orientation. It's going to be strike location, or it's going to be ground interaction, ground contact. And again, I think when, when you can get players to kind of, look at the game that way from, from a much more simple framework of what the golf club, what the ball and golf club interaction was, they can start to see patterns then. You know, is, is the pattern, am I missing a lot of green shot? Well, is that, is that a ground contact issue? Is it, is it clearly that I've got the ability to have a stable club face? Is that the issue? But when you think you can keep these, these areas relatively simple, and in kind of some kind of framework, it's an awful lot easier to then deal with that. And it comes back to what we said at the beginning about adaptability. You know, if you are on the golf course and you're out there and a lot of shots are going to the right, do you have the ability that day, do you have a toolkit with you where you can actually start to present the club face a little bit more to the left, a little bit more closed? And that is the essence of adaptability. And I think when... When people see that as the holy grail, instead of consistency being the holy grail, I think a completely different yep. game opens up. You, you, you just, you're on a wonderful exploration. And I, I, I look back and think about underlying everything and all of the anxiety that I felt on the golf course was the belief in consistency, the belief that I could find this consistent golf swing. And when it didn't appear, as we've already explored, I didn't know where to go. Yep. But now if the exploration is okay what have i got today i'm presenting the phase primarily a little bit open okay what do i need to do to adapt to that today to start finding fairways and start finding greens then all of a sudden you become much more self-sufficient you become much more able to deal with the chaos that the game throws at you yeah one of the things that i've uh, a guest that we had had on recently that that i taught with last couple of year last couple of months really kind of kind of got this in my head a little bit more was how important it was to work the work the golf ball both directions like how important it was to curve it both ways and have the ability to curve it even more than than normal on command because you can always if you can always curve it left and if you can always curve it right you can find a way to survive when it's not your stock shot isn't isn't working and i i mean i preach that to my players all the time but that just goes right into the heart chase of how we as we said early on, we learn from error. How does a baby learn to walk? A baby, a baby learns to walk not by getting it right. It falls to the left, falls to the right, falls forward, falls, and the brain then organizes around those errors. Yeah. You know, that great, that great line, 
I've quoted it many times from some you know, great Sam Sneed, and somebody said to Sam, what, what do you do when you're hooking the ball, Sam? And he just looked and it was, it was the silliest question ever. He said, I just go to the range and I slice it for a while. Yeah. You know, he, he instinctively understood that this, this, this is a constant balancing act because that's, that's ultimately, Chase, is all we're ever trying to do is trying to keep this thing somewhat in balance, aren't we? We're trying to keep path and face somewhat in balance. We're trying to keep strike location somewhat in balance. But when, when you have a relationship to error that is one of curiosity, of okay, where am I hitting it on the face? Or, you know, again, how many golfers would would transform the golf if they set out on a project with the driver of just hitting it out the middle more often? If they if they did nothing else other than hit the ball at the middle of the driver more often, the vast majority of players would 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 play a different game, wouldn't they? Yeah. But how many players actually really know where they strike the ball yeah. because their attention is almost everywhere other than than, than that. Yeah, or or practice hitting it off the toe on purpose and then hitting exactly. it off the hill and back and forth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so do you think that obviously I'm on, on my resume it says golf instructor and, and and I'm a 3D nerd and and I'm a technology technology junkie and I like all this stuff, right? But do you think that people messed up or or we as coaches have messed up by trying to to pigeonhole like you many moons ago into a into a a certain model? Or do you think it was again more your psychology of trying to find perfection that doesn't exist? I think I think there was two things there, Chase. I think that was there was a, there was a model of perfection, but also I fell into the aesthetic trap of how it looked. You know, we're a very visual society. We like things to be symmetrical. We like things to look nice. You know, it, 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 you know, if we could have our way, we'd all like to swing it like Adam Scott. When we'd all look. We'd all look, like to look that good, and I and I definitely fell into that into that trap. Where, you know, as I'll often say now to players, are, are you inter- are you interested in form? Are you interested in function? Yeah. You know, if you're if you're interested in form, well, I'm probably not the guy for you because you can see plenty of guys who'll who'll try and improve your form and make you look better. I'm interested in your functionality. Can you function? on the golf course can you apply the golf club in a way that matches your intention of a cer- of a certain shot and i think you know just on the technology side of it you know I, i'm i'm often accused of being a bit of a luddite really but i'm not because I, I actually think that technology with launch monitors now is the most significant potential advancement in coaching in in the last 30 years we thought video was going to be a great advancement i, I I, I think video caused more problems than it than it than it than it solved. I I think, but I think launch monitors are wonderful in the sense that they don't give you an opinion; they give you a statement of fact about the crucial part of the golf swing, which is which is impact. But what I, I think this would be my thoughts for young players, well, any players really, is is you don't want to farm out your actual experience to the technology. In the sense that what I see people doing to misuse track man and things like that, they'll hit a shot and they'll immediately glance at the track man to see what the numbers say. Well, that that is that no learning is taking place there. However, let's say you're working on strike location and you hit a shot and you estimate where that that golf ball hit the hit the club face towards the toe or the heel, and then you look at the t- technology to back that up. 
I think that's a very, you know, get Raymond's take on this. I think that's a very high learning state then where you're actually, the technology is seeing if your perception and reality are matched closely enough. Yeah, so I'll kind of put a bow around these kind of two areas, which is, you know, to Chase's point, what a great question by Chase. Was it more your psychology or more the fact that you were searching for technique? And it's the clear answer is that it's a confluence of both. If my psychology is geared in a way to search for perfection, it's going to use whatever resources are available to try to attain that perfection. And if I give myself something that can give me numbers instantly to try to tell me what is and isn't perfect, there's no end to that rabbit hole, right? Unless I dig myself out of it. And then when it comes to these uh, launch monitors and we have this motion capture, they're insanely valuable means of feedback provided you are using them in a way that is productive. And clearly there are ways that are really unproductive and there are ways that can be really productive. Us, what the what you're alluding to, Carl, is what I call being self-referential, which is I'm going to do something. I'm going to ask myself, what do I think about this? Or what did I feel? What did I experience first? Then I'm going to go to the external means of feedback to either verify or tell me the distance between the two so that I'm calibrating versus I hit a shot, you tell me what to think about it first, right? So it's yeah. this externalized means of evaluation and confidence, yeah. which we know the danger with that is not in the hitting bay. The danger is when you go to the golf course and that thing's no longer there. And now you don't know what to think about your golf shots or your strike because you haven't been calibrating that on your own first. And that yeah. plays out not just ball striking, but in anything in our life. You know, a lot of players, hey, coach, what did you think about my round of golf? Timeout. What do you think about it? What was yeah. your experience like first, right? So being self-referential is also a significant indicator of strength, psychological strength, that is. And then the other means, again, with these um, TrackMan type machines or these launch monitors, they provide a lot of different metrics. Identifying yeah. what are the most valuable or useful metrics to you is really important. Obviously, it's easy for people to get roped into things like the carry number or perhaps the start line, but depending on what you're working on, those may or may not be the most important metric for you. It might be start line, it might be spin loft, it might be um, you know, face rotation or something of that nature. And so it would be important for people to identify what are the metrics that are best for what I'm working on, most valuable, and actually telling me what am I doing, what I'm doing, and then can I calibrate on it in a self-referential way rather than outsourcing my performance and my thinking and ultimately my learning Again, as Carl said, we learn from error just as much as we learn from success. So if I'm only practicing in a way that includes success and I'm outsourcing my learning metric to the machine, whatever it spits at me, it's a super inefficient way to learn that doesn't translate very well to the golf course. Yeah. You know, and, get, and getting back to what we've talked about with attention, with the use of technology, it's amazing how proficient people can actually become when their attention is on the club. Yeah. Let's say you give somebody the task of presenting the face two or three degrees open to the right, and you give them that task and their attention is on the club face. They actually can become pretty proficient with that relatively yeah. quickly. Again, because they're not diluting their attention. They're not focused anywhere else. They're actually focused on where the heat of the battle's taking place. Yeah, and the nice thing about that too, particularly for someone in Chase's industry or or teaching area is, Let's say you give them that instruction and they can't do it. That is an indicator of where there might be a 
a technical limitation, a physical limitation, a kinesthetic learning uh, deficiency, rather than, oh, I guess I'm just not confident enough or good enough. And then you actually have some information about how to be able to instruct in a way. But, you know, for I'm kind of putting a big bow on kind of the last 20 minutes or so of what we've been talking about and what Chase has been getting to with how we're evaluating our performance and providing direction and, and, and intention of focus is our psychology is the first domino in the domino effect of executing a skill. And so if we set that domino in a productive way, everything else is either non-contaminated, but also we get more out of it in a way that is um, more valuable to us and allows us to learn better, right? We know for sure over and over again, there are different mindsets, which is essentially a core belief system that organizes our information and our experiences that allow for learning and some that don't. And again, if it was only psychological, skill wouldn't matter at all. That's clearly not the case. But if it was only technical, then we wouldn't see such differences between people's performance here and there. So they both work. Where Carl and I come in is we've got to take care of that first domino with you know, your intention, your attention, and your attitude toward that in, in Carl's framework, which is if you put those things into place, you're going to perform more freely and therefore more likely to either perform better, period, end of sentence, regardless of your skill level, wherever it might be. And then two, you're able to evaluate it in a way that tells you this is how you physically or strategically did not perform well enough. Now you can start filling in gaps, which is just another way of saying accelerating learning. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Um, I've got a, got a couple little follow-up questions on the, on how Carl you, I guess my question is like, if you look at 20 different tour players, they all hit it really well. They all, they all perform really well. Um, a lot of people would say there's a lot of differences in their golf swings, but I would say like, if you, if you really dive in, there's a lot more similarities than differences. Um, you know, do you have you ever sent players to another another instructor that may be more technical like i'm a again i'm a golf swing nerd and i love changing golf swings and i haven't i haven't i don't bet a thousand i've i've failed on some projects for sure and i've helped a lot of players hit it a lot better i tell a lot of people i'm a ball striking coach first i want to help you hit it better but a lot of times that in, that includes some work and it's not their their attention could be on the right spot but they've got no idea how to move that club exactly how they need to do so when is it a mechanical issue? When do you see like, hey, you're doing everything right from intention, attention, and acceptance, but you need a you're you're you've got a non-negotiable move in your golf swing that you need to fix it. Like, when does yeah. that ever? When does that that conversation happen? I think again, going back to patterns, I think when you when that player keeps reporting patterns out on the golf course of of shots that happen. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer. It's that once you get to a certain level at this game, it, it is purely about tendencies. All players have certain tendencies. And, 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 and as you say, if that, if that tendency is causing a particular outcome over and over again, and we've explored the psychological route, and we've explored intention, attention, and attitude, but you're still repeating that pattern over and over again, and things aren't shifting, then, yeah, it's, it's time to look at the, the mechanical element. And I think sometimes... A, a fresh perspective or a different a different way of being presented or a different approach maybe some maybe looking at how the body's actually moving is it a physical element is it something physically that is is in your your body that is not allowing you to move in a certain way so it really is in an ideal world about looking looking at this as a great puzzle to solve 
And, you know, you need more than one person on the team to solve that puzzle. And I think it goes back to like, and Raymond and I, Raymond and I have talked about this a lot. You know, it's it's a little bit of everything. You know, yeah. it may be a physical therapist that needs to get involved. Like, it, you know, Raymond's got some shoulder issues that we've been talking about in his golf swing for a long time, and it may just be he needs to get in the gym and and work through that and not listen to me critique his golf swing anymore, right? Or, you know, it may be more of you guys as you know, the player needs way more performance. Um, you know, more psychology stuff than it necessarily, you know, their, their golf swing is, is competent enough to, to hold up a, under pressure. Um, what I talk to my players a lot about is just distractions. Can we make non-distracted golf swings as, as you talk, you know, talk about attention? How do you train your players to hold their attention longer? Or how do you train their players to be more aware, more say mindful? I think it starts with, for me, it starts with a frame of reference about who your actual opponent is when you go and play the game of golf. You know, I'll hear a lot of people say, oh, the, the, the standard on the PGA Tour is is this, and, and, you know, the standard on the European Tour is that. And it's very easy to get wrapped up into who else is playing in that tournament. Now, when you actually start to question players and say, who is your actual opponent, they'll say the golf course. But I don't think that's a strong enough focus. If you look at the golf course, it isn't the golf course that's your opponent. It's the person who designed the golf course. And the person who designed the golf course is, is set out to try and make you do specific things to avoid making pars and birdies. The course designer doesn't want you making pars and birdies. Otherwise, there'd be no lakes. There'd be no out of bounds. Be, every, every hole would be a par five downwind at 460 yards. So it's a, it's a subtle but important shift in the story that when players start to look at every week that they go and play in a tournament, that their actual opponent is the course designer, they get really into trying to solve the puzzle of outwitting the course designer. And I find that the more that they can get into that puzzle, the more they are able to then be present to that particular shot that they've got to hit on that particular hole to, rep to execute the plan. I don't think it's any coincidence that some of the greatest players that the game's ever known ended up being great course designers because they're interested in what a golf course should look like and the problems that it presents. But I think that, that just slight shift of who your opponent is and to really get into... I'll say, look at, look at each week that you go and play on tour as you again, find out the name of the guy who designed the golf course, see him, you're getting into the ring with him. And, you know, when they start to think that way, they can start to go very much more into their own little world of solving that puzzle of outwitting the course design. That's very, very interesting. I'm, that's the first time I've ever heard anybody like actually, cause it's, it's either the golf course or it's yourself or whatever, but actually making it more about the, the architect. That's awesome. Yeah. It's an interesting shift in, um, the task, but the task is how do I problem solve this golf course based on where I am currently and where I need to go through the eyes of the designer. And one of the things we know for sure is a high dopaminergic and high presence state is curiosity for us. And problem solving is another way of saying, how do I get curious about this? Where do I find yeah. uh, solutions to these problems? Or perhaps where do I um, find avenues through to which to deal with this challenge? Right. So that's a high dopaminergic, high present type of state, this state of 
and it's less a state of deprivation curiosity, which is like, how do I get to the end goal? And more of a interest curiosity, which is like, let me just get into this puzzle yeah. rather yeah. than, yeah. And, and the why. thing with that as well, Raymond, what you get is the player then, the, the golf course occurs to them as a place of exploration rather than threat. Yeah. The, 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 you know, when you see the golf course as a place of threat, as you said, the physical responses to that are high consequence. When the, yeah. when the, when the, when the golf course, you know, people love puzzles, don't they? They love to go and do quizzes and things like that. We like to solve problems. But when you frame it of, of you, you know, in a great match against the course designer, the environment of the golf course just takes on a completely different perspective then. Yeah, yeah the, the player ends up like investigating, okay, why was the what was the architect thinking on this? What's, he, got, what's he up to here? What's yeah, he that's right. It's, a, it's like reading a book. It's completely different than any way I'd ever looked at a golf course. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, I got one one last question for you, Carl. And I, I've you know, talked to you on a podcast with Hal and I a, a year ago. I was on your podcast about a year ago, and I, I love your practical approach to how you take on this this complicated sport. Um, give our listeners some um, practical ways to to practice. How do you recommend they practice? Whether it's golf swing, whether it's putting, short game, like give them some take homes for how they can practice and get better. I mean, one thing I, I, I would recommend that people who, who are listening look at is to see the golf course as a training ground, not just a proving ground. I think, you know, pra practice on the range is, is, is one area, and we could spend a whole podcast on that. But I, I love the idea of going out on the golf course. And just, just as one instance, you know, what, what do we know the reality of the game is, Chase? That even at the highest level, you'll go out on the golf course and you will miss a bunch of greens. Very, very rare does anybody hit 18 greens in regulation. So surely we should be training for that. So I, I love a game, I've had a number of players do this, where you go out and you play nine holes of deliberate miss, where your approach shot to the green, you have to deliberately miss the green in the best possible place. But there's a couple of key rules to it. You're not allowed to miss the green shot. So you've actually got to, you've actually got to if you miss the green shot, that's a penalty shot. You've got to carry the ball either left or right into a bunker or a flat area and you miss the green on purpose and then you see if you can get up and down and you see what your score is for, for, for those nine holes. Now, and this is obviously a higher level and there's versions at, at every level you could, you could use. But obviously, if a player can play nine holes and having missed every green and shoot one over, two over, they know for certain then that they've trained for that eventuality in the tournament when they start missing a few greens. And, I, and I, you know, even, even for sort of club players, just look at what you could potentially do on, on the golf course. Is it, could you go out and play six holes of worst ball? Or an, an, another one is a really, really good one. I suggest listeners have a go at is what I call potential better ball, where you go out and you try and shoot as low a score as possible and you have the opportunity, you can hit a second shot on every shot if you need it. So you hit your tee shot, and if it's the fairway, you move on. But if you knock it onto the green and it's not that close, you can potentially hit another one. You're trying to shoot as low as possible. Now, I've had a number of guys who've gone out and shot six, seven, eight, nine under par for nine holes. And then they'll come back and say, the amazing thing is, I've not hit that, I've not hit that many second shots. 
And again, it just opens up a different avenue of what 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 is your psych what is your psychology like when you give yourself again, it's back to acceptance, give yourself permission that I can let go on this one because there's another one waiting for me. And it I think the more people can look at the golf course at the training ground, I think the, the there's so many interesting things you can do with that. Yeah, we yeah, use um Mr. Green on purpose. I, I don't I don't I haven't told them to not miss short, so that's a little uh, an added step. Um, but I, I love that game for a, a myriad of reasons. Number one is course management, like picking precise targets and figuring out, you know, again, investigating the course, the the architect to figure out where to hit it and in what spots. So that that game teaches you to hit it precisely. Your ball striking's got to be pretty good for you to hit it in those spots that are easy to get up and down. And then it works on short game, chipping, putting. Like if you can go shoot at level par in that game you're on top of your game. That's a very, Absolutely. very difficult game. I, that's one of my favorites. We've been doing that for a while. I've, I've had a few plays said when they'll, if, if they play, say, on a Tuesday and Wednesday at a tour event, and they'll go out there and play nine holes of deliberate miss. The other rule the other rule I have is you, if you're playing deliberate miss with two other guys, you've got to go out there and, and not tell them you're about to play deliberate miss. <laughs> so that's the, that's the other one as well. But they've often said, that that nine holes where they play deliberate miss, they feel that they've got much more aware of what the course designer is trying to get them to do. They could become much more intimate with the golf course as a result of doing that. Yeah. Carl, before we finish up here, you and I have done some work together here in the last couple of weeks on a, uh, something that's going to be available through your platforms. Tell the people about it. Yeah, I'm really excited about it, Raymond. We, uh, we, we, we talked about this idea of a program around building stable confidence. Uh, we, we spent some time preparing for it, and, and basically we've put, put this program together. It's a, it's a slideshow, uh, yourself and myself, talking about the actual steps of building stable stable confidence. It's a practical guide of, of, of all the areas where confidence isn't stable and then how to actually build it in a, in a, in a systematic way. So that uh, that's available at uh, my website, which is the themindfactor.com. Okay, so mindfactor.com, if you want to hear more of me and Carl talk about confidence. And we go into some pretty significant depth about that domino effect of that starts with our psychology, moves through our neurology, physiology, and then ultimately what the research tells us that does to our physical skill execution. So um, some really valuable stuff there. Um, Carl, where can people find you if they're trying to get in touch with you, learn more about your programs, follow you on all the, the online stuff? Where can they get you? Yeah, I, I'm I'm still a, a, a 36 handicap with social media. Unfortunately, I try and avoid it. Um, so the best place to get hold of me, Raymond, is is just go to the website. Just go to the the themindfactor.com. I have a I do a little bit on Twitter. Well, my wife does a little bit on Twitter actually. She's the one who looks after that side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Carl Morris, I think it is. So uh, yeah, but but the the website and. Uh, I'm more than happy to, if anybody's got any questions, just e- email me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty responsive on, on email. Yeah. Outstanding. Carl, Carl. I'd like to thank, thank you for, Oh, Chase has got yeah. one more thing. Yeah. I was just feeling left say, out still. I, nope. I, I got my fix in at the last, the, the, the last half of the episode. I'm good to go. No, Carl, I was just going to say, I, I feel like, you know, between obviously I'm, you and Raymond are two of the best performance coaches in the in the country in the world and um i i've loved talking with you the last couple of times we talked and i love your practical approach you're one of the nicest guys in the business and so you listeners at home wanting to dive in deeper to stable confidence there's not a better place to to get the the information that both raymond and, and carl provide so i just uh, keep 
keep doing what you're doing because I've, I'm a big fan and I think our listeners will, will really have enjoyed this last hour and 15 minutes or so. I really, I really appreciate it. And it can be a lonely place at times, can't it? This, this, this game of golf. And it's just nice to talk with, uh, you know, folks of a bit of the same sort of idea. We're trying to help people get better. So it's been, it's been a, a real blast, this conversation. Yeah, you know it's a good episode when Chase butters you up at the end. It's always my favorite. <laughs> Manny, I did, I did pay him a few quid, so that was... Yeah. That Appreciate it. <laughs> Carl, thank you for joining us. Um, Chase and I, in the next week or so, we've got... Uh, tell him, Chase, we have an Instagram live thing coming up. So I'm also a 36 handicap on the social media, but Chase is a scratch. So he's going to tell us what's coming up. And then we also have a couple more Q&A episodes. We've been getting a lot of cues for us to a so fill us in just a little bit chase on what we're doing and then we'll let the people go yeah so next few episodes will be q a um the problem is our live instagram q a is probably going to be uh, a week after or before that this episode comes out so you guys listening at home sorry you're gonna miss just the kidding. instagram just sorry uh, raymond jumped the jumped the gun on that one but uh <laughs> but no we will do more so if you guys want to hear us do more please let us know um, we're going to start trying to co- go live maybe once a month, once every two months, and just kind of, kind of get your, get in there with you guys live and let you ask some questions. So, next couple episodes will probably be your next episode will probably be a Q and A, um, and then we'll get some more guests on. Right on. Okay, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us, uh, Carl. Once again, thank you so much, and to everybody who's listening to this, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, definitely Happy Hanukkah, and all those things going on. And uh, we'll see you next time on Golf Beneath the Surface. Thank you.